It's time for Truth, a ministry of Truth Family Bible Church in Middleton, Idaho. It's time for Truth exists to glorify God through the edification of His saints in our local church and for the benefit of the church around the world. I'm your host, Pastor Danny Steinmeier, and I am joined in studio with my friend and fellow elder at TFBC, Jim Berg. Well, welcome once again, everyone, to another episode of the podcast. Uh, we are in a, a series within a series. I, I think I like to do those things. I've done series within a series of series at, in my preaching, and uh, the podcast is no different. We've been in a, a series in this first season of the podcast related to our church distinctives, walking through those elements and, and expanding those for our listeners. But we've uh, taken a little excursus into elder examination territory as uh, our church has been growing and we have the need for further development of leadership. And so um, our last episode, we began the elder exam um, questioning of Brett Kendall. And so we are grateful to have Brett uh, back in studio with us today. So Brett, welcome. Thanks for having me. Jim, how are you today? Yeah, doing great. I, I, we've talked about this many times, Danny. Our off-podcast conversations are podcastable, and <laughs> we just did that. We uh, we were off podcast and having great discussions, and we hope that we capture the enthusiasm that we have offline in these discussions in such a way that you engage in this and in this elder exam that you would reach out to Brett and reach out to Kelly and have discussions with them about what we're discussing and even talk to us about it as well. It's just a we have great rich discussions about God, about things that are biblical and theological, and how they apply to the world that we live in. So we hope that you get a sense of that and that you're as excited as we are. Yes, absolutely. We hope that you are engaged in this process. And uh, this is not the end-all, be-all of the entire examination and getting to know elder candidate candidate process. Uh, if you have further questions, if you want further clarification, if there's anything that you would like to ask that we didn't ask, uh, your responsibility, if you care uh, about the leadership of your church, is to take the opportunity to talk to Brett and uh, and and to Kelly, and and ask them your questions and to ask for clarification, and uh, or, or forever hold your peace. I mean that, that that's a little bit of the uh, of of the feeling anyway, right? Of yeah. of look, if you're in the church and then you're you're thinking, oh, you know, we should should or shouldn't have done this or that. Well, did you engage in the process? We are reminding you that you have a responsibility in the church to be active uh, as a participant. And uh, and this is this is part of that, and so this is uh, putting things out there for you to hear and to uh, appreciate and to value. But we also hope that you would take advantage of further opportunity to get to know uh, these elder candidates. So we'll get right into it uh, today. Uh, last time we left off talking about things related to sphere sovereignty, and uh, we kind of had a question develop also. Uh, that we talked about offline, and we just want to bring it online for you, and, and that is just to ask um, Brett a, an opening question here, relative to your your understanding of the separation of powers, if you will, or the separation of church and state. Uh, what is your view of the church's relationship to the government, and maybe in, speak to the issue of 
even just the ability to to tax or not tax uh, the tax exempt status of the church. Would you just kind of give some of your thoughts, uh, some of the you shared a little bit offline? Well, I, I think what's what you need to keep in mind is it's a separate sphere of authority. I mean, you have church, state, and family. They're separate spheres. So the church doesn't fall under the government authority. Um, and for, you know, ever since the beginning of this, of this country, churches were totally separate. Um, they were, of course, tax exempt. Um, and even now, it's interesting, um, even now churches are automatically tax exempt um, by the IRS. You don't have to apply like a regular nonprofit has to apply for tax exempt status. Now, some churches do apply um, for tax exempt status, but they don't have to. Um, they're automatically exempt. Um, they're not under the, the, the church. The local church is not under the authority um, of the civil magistrate at all. And so the government hasn't granted us by their good favor uh, tax-exempt status. It's actually a recognition of the reality that we are part of a, a separate kingdom, that, that there is a, a distinction of, the, of the, the authority and the sphere of the church and the state. And so we are actually more like embassies, and, and just like embassies are, are representations of sovereignty of a foreign nation within, within that, that nation. So for instance, the the French embassy in the United States is not taxed because it is part of France and it's 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 its own uh, representation of France in our country and and taxation and this is a key element that we're, I don't want to go but too far backwards but taxation is a declaration of ownership right uh, we have the right to your stuff and, and and that's where the church has always been recognized that from the founding of our country, and we'll see where this goes in the future, right? With with the tyranny and the communism and the and the atheism that is dominating our country, but in, from the founding, what you're recognizing is the reality that uh, the, the, our government recognized the church is a embassy of uh, the heavenly kingdom, and therefore the state does not have the right to tax it because we don't own it. It's not under that same jurisdiction. Right. And one of our earlier podcasts, we talked about that, Danny. We talked about in Texas up until recently, if you were um, somebody that was here illegally, you could run into a church and the church would not turn them over because it was this separate. They couldn't come in and arrest them because it was not their jurisdiction. So it's an interesting concept. And going along with that, you know, it's interesting here in Idaho, mm -hmm. if you're a church, um, you don't have to pay property taxes either. So going back to that taxation um, means ownership, it shows that even the government doesn't own church land. The church does. Um, no, that's, that's good. That's important. And we'll see where that goes <clears throat> in the future. Well, let's uh, get into some more uh, questions that we have for Brett. We're going to move into... Um, oh, actually, we, we did have one other question holding over from some of our questions related to church and state. And, and that is, uh, Brett, would you just identify some of your familiarity with the Frankfurt Declaration of Christian and Civil Liberties and, uh, and maybe just comment on, on your th thoughts as you interacted with that? Yeah, um, yeah, I went ahead and, and read it. Um, it was a good um, declaration. Um, I can't remember the specific details right now, but when I, when I was reading it, I was like, oh yeah, this is good, this is good. Um, and then I ultimately signed it because um, I, I agreed with it so much. So yeah, 
Good, good. And Jim and I are also signers of it. We were just talking offline too. We don't need to be signers of everything that comes down the pike, but uh, some of these I think are valuable, especially in our current day to be on the record as to the things that we affirm or and also the things that we deny in these types of statements. And we thought that, for instance, the Dallas Statement on Social Justice and the Frankfurt Declaration of Christian and Civil, Civil Liberties were certainly relevant documents and, and good works for us to be on board with. So let's transition. We've talked a lot about politics, but let's talk about society in general and the role of the church in society. Like, how do we and what is our role in dealing in a society in terms of speaking the cultural issues that we're, we were talking about earlier and the things that we're dealing with? I, I think a foundational understanding um, should be that Christ is king overall. He's the king of kings. So uh, Jesus Christ has authority even over the civil government. So when you're talking about the role of the church and society in terms of speaking to culture issues, of course we should could, should talk to cultural issues because Christ is king over over the culture, and he has um, many things to say about uh, about how the uh, cultural um, uh, landscape is is all about. And you know, the classic term is that we, as a church, we should be the prophetic voice, and this is not. I don't believe it's optional that the church should be the prophetic voice. I think they are the prophetic voice and they should be the prophetic voice. Um, yeah. So, so how would you handle the, the world will tell us that we need to have separation from church and state. So that's fine for society, but how do we do that with, with politics and politicians and governing authorities? What role does the church play in dealing with that? Well, it's interesting you brought up church and state. It's it's very uh, interesting concept because there is no law that talks about church and state. It was a letter that Jefferson gave um, that talks about how there won't be a church and state um, unification. What he was talking about was that there was a church state in England. And he was saying, no, we're not going to have a church state in America. We're going to allow the church to um, uh, spring up and uh, naturally, um, you know, as, as according to the God, uh, God calls. And there is going to be various den denominations. There's going to be various um, beliefs that people have. Um, so we need to keep that in mind that uh, in terms of uh, political office, political involvement, um, that there, there, you know, people will use this, reasoning oh well that you know you're crossing the line between church and state well no uh, the church should um, be a prophetic voice into all those issues into how candidates um, you know politicians should um, operate yep good um, what are the limitations and drawbacks that are possible regarding the church's involvement in these spheres so if we have a prophetic voice if we are engaged with uh, speaking and interacting with political and social and cultural matters, um, are there limitations or are there drawbacks to the church being involved in these other areas? And do you have any biblical arguments on this subject? Yeah, so there there is is a ditch um, that the church can uh, fall into. Uh, there's actually two ditches on either side of, of the, uh, the the road, you know, the the straight path that we should Yes, we should be involved in um, um, in speaking to uh, social issues, cultural issues, 
Um, but we, but we want to be careful. We want to be careful that the church doesn't become, you know, a political action committee where they only are involved in politics and every single sermon, every single discussion is about politics and policies and how you should vote and who you should vote for and, and things like that. We need to be careful um, that we don't that we don't fall into that particular ditch. But, you know, on the other side of the, um, of the road, we don't want to fall into the other ditch, uh, where we have no involvement whatsoever and various church denominations, um, over church history have fallen into this ditch where they say, no, we, we're not going to have any political involvement whatsoever. You know, the government's going to do its thing and we're going to, we're going to do, um, uh, uh, it's thing, and but but we we want to be careful not to fall in that ditch because we're commanded by Scripture to preach the whole counsel of God. That means all the principles, um, all the injunctions in Scripture, um, and 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 Scripture talks about things in the political realm in in the uh, for cultural issues. Turns uh, out, marriage is political. Yeah, <laughs> marriage is political. Um, you know, sexuality a a woman. is political, yeah, exactly. and um, abortion uh, is is political, and the, the Bible talks about that specifically um, as murder. So, um, the the problem with the church not becoming involved in that, not not as a political action committee, but but not involved in any regard is that there is, the civil magistrate is completely unrestrained. They will do whatever they can get away with doing. Um, and we've definitely seen that uh, in various countries, especially in this country in the last probably uh, few decades that they're really uh, in unrestrained um, uh, to, to a large degree. And, you know, in terms of uh, biblical argumentation about how we should be involved in the situation, um, we've looked at Romans 13, and obviously that's a, a, a critical uh, passage, you know, where um, uh, the scripture talks about um, how the, the government is to wield the sword against evil, you know, it talks about good and evil and who defines what good and evil is. Well, it's not them. It's God that defines good and evil. God calls them a minister, that they're um, a minister of him, um, that you know, they have a delegated authority and limited authority on, on what they can do. Um, but this other uh, passage um, in Proverbs 29.2 um, talks about, it's a very simple statement uh, that re that's uh, regarding this. It says, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. And that's a simple uh, axiom that we can really stake our claim in is, you know, if there's righteous people, if there's godly people that are in government, well, what's the result? Well, the people are happy, right? But if you have wicked people in authority, um, the people, you know, groan under the weight of that oppression. And you see that in various states, you know, states like California and states like uh, New York, especially New York City during COVID. I mean, they were extremely heavy handed um, and the people uh, uh, were groaning under that um, weight of oppression. So that principle alone um, dictates uh, or shows uh, the results of what we should be all about in terms of political involvement, um, because it's good for 
uh, our neighbor. It's good for us. Um, it's good for our churches. It's good for the community um, when righteous people are in authority. Yeah, so it leads us to probably the biggest Twitter debate in the past 60 days, which is Christian nationalism. So kind of give us your ideas on what that means to you. Is America a Christian nation? Was it a Christian nation? Kind of what would your definition of a Christian nation look like, uh, given the context of what you just discussed? Well, the problem with the Christian nationalism debate is people really don't understand uh, what they're um, debating in terms of what their position is and what the other person's position is. Um, what is at core, I think, was what people are afraid of is um, is um, that we only have Christians and everybody that's not Christians are going to be kicked out. When they hear that label Christian nationalism, that's what people think of. And they're, they're terrified because, you know, if they're not a Christian, they're, they are thinking, well, if, if Christian nation, nationalism really takes place, they're going to be kicked out. And the only people that are going to be left are believing Christians. And, and I don't believe that's what it, it's talking about at all. Um, I think it's really talking about it, you know, was, uh, America a Christian nation? Well, of course it was. Um, you know, m most of the signers of, of the founding documents were, uh, Bible believing Christians. And even people will, people will say, well, there's, you know, non-Christians in the mix. Well, Ben, Ben Franklin was one of those. He was a self-avowed, uh, non-Christian yet he called for prayer. Like, isn't that weird? He recognized the God of the Bible. He recognized the, that people needed God's blessing um, on all this process. So it was uh, uh, America a Christian nation? Of course. Is uh, America still a Christian nation? Um, I believe uh, loosely it is, but it's fading fast. Um, we are, as a culture, we're moving away from largely um, being uh Christianized. I mean, church involvement, church attendance has gone down dramatically, um, especially since COVID, um, which is, a, I think, at least a, a demonstrable um, outward um, demonstration of, of, of broadly Christianity. Um, so how would I define a Christian nation? Um, it's not regenerate people. That's not what it's talking about. A Christian church, right? You, you you say a church is Christian. Is everybody a Christian, a regenerate believer in a church? Of course not. Right. That's not what it's talking about. That doesn't mean that you have to remove that label from the church. You you can't use the word Christian for that church. Of course, it's a Christian church, whether it's you know a mixed uh, uh, congregation, and and same thing with a country. Or is there ever sin in that church? Well, of course they're sending that of church. Of course. Well, I mean, how can you call it Christian? Well, <laughs> that's that's not what the clearly what you're talking getting right. to is that's not the definition. Right. The definition is if they acknowledge God, and we see that on our money, right? In God we trust. There's an acknowledgement, generally speaking, um, of uh, that God um, is is overall, and they you know they uphold uh, the law, um, but. You know, they're not necessarily, like I said, they're not necessarily regenerate believers, but it still can be called a Christian nation. Yep. 
Good. Well, thank you. Moving forward here with some um, further questions. Uh, what, does, what does it mean in your understanding that Jesus is Lord? And even I'll add to that, what is the extent of his lordship? And what difference does your understanding of that make? So I'll, I'll include kind of all three parts of that. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? What is the extent of his lordship? And what difference does your understanding of his lordship make? So the first uh, question is, what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? Well, if you look at that word, it means that he's master. Excuse me. And that's probably the easiest for us to understand. Um, king is a better word, but we don't live in a monarchy. So we don't have that personal experience of, of living under a... a, a uh, a, a monarchy um so but it's it's master it's king so when you see that verse right that says um seek first the kingdom of god and all these things will be added to you well so we talk about kingdom of god and that's essential to understanding what a king is well what is the primary thing that defines what a kingdom is well there's a king right so this idea that that he is king is essential. Now we need to remember that sin is really defined as tr treason. You think of treason as a, uh, going against your country or going against your king, and that's exactly what sin is. It's it's doing the opposite of what Christ has commanded us to do. Therefore, it is treason because he is king. He is master. And what is the extent of his lordship? Well, it's it's overall. It's overall. In Revelation 19, it makes that clear that he doesn't have, he has authority over everything in the universe, including um, all the world and all the kingdoms of men. Abraham Kuyper even said that there's not a single inch in the whole of human uh, existence over which Christ does not say mine i mean that is the extent of his lordship he is lord over everything and the third question is what difference does your um understanding make i i think it's not a tangential um argument it's an essential thing that we need to understand completely um that nothing is exempt from his authority we talked about the spheres of authority in the previous podcast Right, you have church, uh, uh, state church, and family, um, and all those uh, requirements. There's, there's nothing that that's outside of their uh, that his authority. There's nothing neutral that he speaks to um, everything that we experience in this in this life. And personally, um, we must submit to his authority. I mean, it's not just a general uh, uh, element that we that we collectively must submit to. His authority and we must but we individually must submit to his authority and that's i think that's a, a challenge especially um here in the west the northwest that we have this rugged individualism that we don't like to submit to authority um we don't like to have people tell us what to do um but the bottom line is he is king overall. He is the king of kings. We must submit to his authority ah, individually. Beautiful. Yeah, that's so good. And it, it's interesting because it does shape your understanding of everything. And 
we talked about, just talked about Christian nationalism, and there was a document out there that kind of tried to define it because definitions were tough. And I read it and I agreed with everything in it, but I put it under the context of this is a lordship document, therefore I don't need to sign it. I, of course I want Christians to run our nation. Of course I want Christian principles running our nation. Of course I want more and more of lordship over the United States. That's a no-brainer. Like that is just an absolute no-brainer. And so, you know, didn't feel necessity to sign it, even though I agree with everything that's in it. So, yeah. So moving on, let's talk about um, people and history that have kind of influenced your thought processes you've gone through. So who are some of the people, theologians, pastors, or authors that have influenced you the most, kind of your top couple, and how did they shape you? What kind of, what impact did they have on you? Yeah, these are these are my top shelf uh, people. Um, I was um, your Mount Rushmore, right? Yeah, my Mount Rushmore <laughs> people, my my top shelf, right? I, I literally had top shelf books on my top shelf, um, uh, but I don't anymore. They're they're uh, categorized. So anyway, so probably the first uh, foundational. Um, influencer was my pastor, Monty Martin, who discipled me, who mentored me um, personally for, for a lot of years, um, especially um, into uh, the ministry. And um, he was, he was formative um, in, in my understanding of multiple things, formative of understanding what the true gospel was, um, what uh, union with Christ was, um, he was, he was formative, um, in, in, in all this, he's far and above all these other people. Um, but I like these other people, uh, as well. Uh, Lloyd Jones was another one. Uh, Monty gave me his book, uh, preacher and preaching, um, early on. Um, and I loved that book. I still have that book. Um, it was, it was formative for me to understand, um, what preaching should look like. Um, the Puritans, uh, not an individual, but a, a group of, the, you know, the Puritans what was a heavy influence on me. Um, books like, uh, you know, Thinking Spiritually, um, which was a, like a paraphrase redaction of um, A Spiritual Mind, I think was the, the name of the work by John Owen um, was essential. Um, you know, uh, experience that counts, which was a rewrite of religious affections by Jonathan Edwards was also a, uh, foundational book. Um, DA Carson is another, um, heavy hitter in my life. Uh, I liked his book on exegetical fallacies, um, so much that I, uh, I actually read it twice, which was, I don't think I've ever written, read it. Read, uh, read a, a nonfiction book twice, um, but I so much liked exegetical fallacies because especially the word study uh, chapter, because it's so often that we form our understanding of a verse by an isolated uh, study of a word and rather than look at the context um, of the passage. So that, that was that was really good. That was like our discussion yesterday, Danny. We were talking about how abused that gets, where you take something that is correctly exegeted, but you overlay your view of it on top of it, and you take it out of context and run with it. And that's where the word study really is important. Yeah, that was that was foundational. And uh, probably another uh, gentleman that um, uh, in, impacted me 
uh, personally was uh, MacArthur, John MacArthur. Um, I remember sitting in his church. I was, I don't know, I was probably later teens. Um, he was preaching a sermon and I can't remember the topic of the sermon, but he referenced that verse. I think it's in first or second uh, Peter talking about how we desire the pure milk of the word and uh, just how important it is to desire um, uh, things of God, the scripture. And I remember praying at that point and said, I want that. Um, it was, uh, it was very convicting, um, uh, regarding what he, what he talked. Um, and another Puritan, I, I missed this is, um, uh, Walter Marshall. He wrote a book on gospel mystery of sanctification. And that was also a very foundational book for me. So. Okay. A lot of, uh, uh, so uh, several personal um, preachers and disciplers, but then um, and then a lot of old dead guys. Yeah, uh, love so. me some old dead guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. What uh, tell us about <clears throat> these particular individuals? Your thoughts um, and about their contributions to Christianity and to you personally. Um, you might not have uh, much with some of these. You might have more with others. Uh, just some of your thoughts on on kind of who they are, their influence on Christianity, positive, negative, whatever that looks like for you. And so, um, yeah, quick couple words on each would be cool. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. a few kind of uh, almost word association, but not, okay. not quite, not yeah. quite word association. Um, uh, when you, okay, when you hear RC Sproul, what do you, what comes to mind for you? He's a giant of the faith. He influenced, uh, Christianity in, in a huge scale and personally on a huge scale at, uh, as well. Um, but he was incredibly articulate. I loved hearing him speak. Um, he was a humble guy and he was a jovial guy. He was a funny guy. He would preach and, 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 and insert these funny things. I don't know if he meant to be funny or whatever, but, uh, he was, uh, he was, a he was a joy to listen to. And, uh, yeah, he was definitely, definitely a giant in the faith. All right. Vody Bacham. Um, I've known of Vodi for a very long time. He was, um, his book that was written that I read, um, called, uh, family driven faith, um, was one of those books that really opened my eyes a lot to, uh, family worship to family integration, um, which is the uh, model of our church. So he was, he talked about that a lot, um, dating and courtship. Um, was another area that I've really relied on him uh, a, a ton. So I really like Vody. All right. Uh, Tim Keller. Um, I don't have much to talk about on him oh, because good. I wasn't really a follower of Tim. That's, uh, that's good also. I know that he had, unfortunately, he had a, a large influence in Christianity, but he was way too leftist. And, and I've, uh, I was reading an article that he was a registered Democrat, which I find uh, problematic. So, to say the least. Amen. Amen to that. We could keep going. Jack Hibbs. Again, I don't know very much about uh, about him, but if I remember correctly, he kept his church open in California during COVID, um, which I thought was a a, a dramatic stand. Uh, MacArthur also uh, did that, which I thought was good. Um, and 
there wasn't that many churches in California, unfortunately. So one of my concerns about Hibs is, and, and this is not a, an, definitely a judgment uh, because I, I, I don't know enough, but the, the, the trend that I'm concerned about in the direction that, that he has tended to gone is one of the ditches that you talked about, which is the, the over-engagement in that political realm. Um, I, I, I think there's, there's some good stands there's some good elements, but um, that, that's one of the concerns I have is, is that uh, they seem to be uh, very, very open to the politicians and things like that being really a, a major part of their ministry. And I, I, again, striking that staying in the middle of the road balance, I'm, I'm, I wonder about that a little bit. With no, I hadn't thought about that. And that's pretty new for them. That's a that's a pretty new response from Calvary Chapel. I think so. Um, I think so. So I was kind of encouraged by it, but now that you say that, that's that's interesting. Yeah, again, it's not because we're not going to say, yeah, thou shalt not, because right, we would identify because there's the, the other ditch on the other side. Right. Um, it's just uh, sometimes the, the amount of, of political... Um, Discussion, engagement, and and cooperation. You know, that, that was one of the problems with the religious right and 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 the uh, you know the Jerry Falwells and right, some exactly. of the some of that type of stuff was the was the linking of uh, you talked about even the idea of, of unifying, if you will, the the church and state po- politicians and things like that. that. Those are just the 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 carefulness of understanding what the church's mission is, as opposed to you know linking those. Okay, I don't want to talk too much more on that. Uh, Jim, you got another one. Al Moeller. Again, um, I'm not a follower of Al Moeller, um, but my first thought over the years with him is I, I'm just kind of confused by him. Um, you know, he's allowed some social justice ideas and woke ideas in the SBC. So, I, you know, if you have one word association, I'm just confused by him. Like, I, I don't get him. That's a great one. That, I think that's fair. I Perfect. Think, I think that's a great answer. Yeah. yeah. Andy Stanley. Again, uh, I'm not a follower of him and I wouldn't be. Um, the one word uh, association is weak. He's weak on the Bible. Um, he's weak on homosexuality. Um, it, unfortunately, he has a large influence mainly because of his dad, but. It certainly got him started. Yeah. So how would you, like, if Andy denies the Old Testament, would that categorize him as a false teacher? What To what extent, where do you draw your line on false teaching? Like a false teacher oh, calling yeah. it out. Absolutely. Yeah. If you're denying the scripture. There you go. You're absolutely going to yeah. be a false teacher. So he's a false teacher. <laughs> uh, J.C. Ryle. Again, I'm not uh, a, a follower of Ryle. Well, he's been dead for a long time, but. Um, but I know that he has a, uh, he's had a big effect on young men with his, uh, some of his works. Um, so, um, but he's had a huge influence in, in, in Christianity. Charles Finney, uh, one word association, which is really two words, not good. Um, you know, he was an Arminianist. Uh, he was a decisionism. I'm glad that you can count words better than Joe Biden can count words. Yeah. <laughs> that's a benefit, right? That's a, that's a, that's a skill right there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I would not promote anything by Finney. John Calvin. Oh, I love me some John Calvin. Uh, one word, uh, colossal. I mean, he had a colossal, gigantic impact 
in all of uh, Christianity. Uh, his theology, he was so deep on his theology. His preaching um, was uh, impressive. Um, he preached um, constantly. I think it was every day. I think it was multiple times a day. Jerk. I know. I know. I mean... That would be nice, right? <laughs> um, and he, he is one of my heroes. Um, uh, I didn't recognize him as a hero so me and my sister after college we took a, a european backpack trip and we went to geneva and you know i was a, a dumb kid so i didn't really realize that calvin's church would have been right there and i should have saw it but i didn't so i regret that lost opportunity i know all right so let's move into creeds and confessions and danny and i talk about building on the shoulders of what's already come before us. We love the fact that a lot of the hard work is done. We see this in some of the historical creeds and confessions. So tell us kind of what, what ones do you like? Do you have any favorites? Uh, what about them kind of catches your eye? And do you have any that you would caution us against? Yeah, the my favorite is the uh, Chalcedonian Creed about the two natures of Christ. Um, but I really appreciate all the major uh, you know, creeds and con confessions. Um, and what I like about them is that it shows a continuity uh, with Christianity that we don't have to reinvent the wheel um, right away. We have resources that we can pull off of that believers have done um, over the years. Um, but, you know, as we continue to, you know, as the phrase is, separa reformanda, right? we always reform. We are always reforming. But we can draw on these creeds and get a historical per perspective. Um, one of my favorite uh, studies in college was historical theology, just seeing how the church believed on certain topics and what they emphasized in certain uh, 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 eras of what they were facing, right? Um, of of uh, what their emphases are. So yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. I've got a really important question. Uh, it might be the most important one. How tall are you? My license says 5'11". <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I'm, I, you know, it was great to have you today, Brett. It was great to have you. You know, it's been a good run, uh, but I'm not sure that that's actually I'm uh, out. tall okay. enough. See you. But you do what you, what you lack in height, you do make up for in beard. So we're, oh, we're, we're, yeah. we're, we're grateful for that. Advantage. Kelly's got the opposite problem, right? <laughs> Kelly, Kelly is, uh, he, he's good on the height, but man, he's lacking in the beard. Lacking in the beard. So we'll see. He's, he's kind of on the, on the, on the fence too. You know, we'll see if he, if he makes it, you know, uh, <laughs> and not all, not all creeds are good. Let's go back to that. I think it's important to point out. Have you guys heard of the sparkle creed yet? <laughs> I'm no. afraid so. So you haven't, and, haven't. and you guys have, and they're over here laughing. It's really important. <laughs> it's the apostles creed modified for queer theory. And so, this is more for our listeners than it is for the people in this room, but not all creeds are good, guys. That so is true. We, we go to the scripture, but some of these that have been established over the years are, yeah. are beautiful. We validate them off of scripture, but they've done a great job. But not all creeds are good. Very important. Well, how would you describe your understanding of biblical manhood and womanhood? I know that's a big um, topic, so I'll just kind of bring some of the categories and some of the different kind of angles that it's taken in uh, history. Uh, 
we identify complementarianism, egalitarianism, patriarchy as a for instance. Can you describe a little bit of your understanding of the differences between these different views of manhood and womanhood, as well as you know how they even play out in marriage and the importance and implications of these? Yeah, it, it's a an interesting study. I, I always prefer biblical terminology over uh, over uh, other terminology because I think it's more clearly anchored um, in Scripture. Um, you know, complementarianism and egalitarianism are not necessarily biblical words. Maybe in modern translations they are, I don't know. Um, but they're not um, biblical terms. So I, my preference is patriarchy with an emphasis on headship because they're both biblical terms. I mean, you find the word patriarch in scripture and you find the word uh, headship in scripture. And um, what, what's interesting is um, in, in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, it says, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man. And it's very interesting. The head of Christ is God. So it's not about uh, an issue of lesser or greater authority. Why? why? Why can I say that? Because Christ is completely equal with God the Father. I mean, that's God right there. So obviously, if we extrapolate that into the other examples, uh, woman is not lesser in terms of authority than man. They have equal value. I mean, uh, equal value, although they have uh, different roles. And that's where, where these three categories come into. You know, complementarian idea is, yes, they do have different roles. But um, unfortunately, in my understanding, there isn't an incredible emphasis on headship. Um, the, the authority that the, that the father has, the husband has in the home, uh, egalitarianism, uh, there's no roles whatsoever. They're inter completely interchangeable. Uh, a man can do, uh, everything that a woman can do except bear children. Um, a woman can do everything that a, a man can do and, and should do, um, the idea I like going back to, I like the idea of patriarchy because uh, it emphasizes headship and roles. It's, it's, it's both um, emphasis there that there, there is roles, that there is a uh, roles that uh, men do and there's roles that women do. Um, um, and they're not interchangeable at all. Uh, yet the man is still, is still the head. Just for our listeners, just to give a little definition, a little bit of a distinction, because maybe, maybe you think patriarchy and complementarianism. You, maybe you thought they were the same thing. Maybe many of us would would say and use terminology about uh, the complementary nature of which God made man and woman. And there's something. There's a truth to that. I think one of the key elements of uh, definitionally, really, of complementarianism is it's it looks to the biblical discussion of manhood and womanhood limited to the family and the church. And that's one of the things that it, it really, um, as a view of manhood and womanhood, it tends to fall short in the areas of, of culture, society, and really the roles of men and women overall. And so, for instance, uh, uh, it doesn't really account for uh, a biblical understanding of, uh, of roles, for instance, of authority in the state. Uh, roles in police policing and and uh, protection of of culture and society of families, 
so for instance, complementarianism doesn't do well uh, in terms of, it really, it doesn't have much to say about women in the military. Right. And I think it's a problem in that, it, it to me, it's a third way term that yeah. sits in between patriarchy and egalitarianism that that is less defined. It softens. You have this broad, and, and I believe it, it was intentional. It's a, it's a newer term, right? It came in the eighties and it is intention to weaken patriarchy. It's, it's intention to weaken the Bible. Now there are some people that would say they're complementarianism that match patriarchy perfectly. Does that make sense? Yes. And, and my uh, contention would be don't use an unnecessary term when you can use a good biblical term. Exactly. That's, exactly. that's what I really like about what you said and the way that it came across. So, so given your view of that, inside the church, how do you see the roles of men and women in the church? Um, yeah, so uh, in terms of eldership, um, if you look at 1 Timothy 2, um, 1 Timothy 2 talks about this issue um, uh, clearly. It says... Uh, 1 Timothy 2, starting in verse 11, says, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit uh, a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but be in silence. Now, he gives the reasoning behind that uh, prohibition. And he's talking about the church. Um, for Verse 13 says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So he goes to uh, the creation order um regarding uh the authority of the in, of the church in the church so men have authority in the church be simply because well there's other reasons but fun primarily because um god created man first um so uh so of course uh women should uh, not serve um as as an elder in the church now they do have uh, uh, roles that they can play in the church. In Titus two, it, you know, it talks about um, you know the older men um, teach uh, the the younger men, um, uh, the older women likewise that they should be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their, their children. And this is so critical. Like I, I can't emphasize this enough. Uh, my wife has uh, benefited greatly when older women have done this over the years um, in her life. Uh, I mentioned the pastor that mentored me, Amani, his wife, Pam, um, also uh, mentored my wife and spoken to her life a lot in in a in a Titus two um, fashion, and that is um, a primary role that all women should seek. I mean, you are older than other people, right? You know, a fifteen year old is older than a three year old, so obviously there is some discipleship that they can happen to, you know. To a limited degree, of course, um, in that relationship, um, you know, a sixty-year-old can mentor a thirty-year-old um, uh, who's you know raising a family and things like that um, in ways that are really um, beyond value to that younger woman. So um, these are absolutely uh, uh, what women should what women should seek. 
That's critical. Good. Well, would you summarize a little bit of your view of a godly marriage and the biblical roles for husbands and wives? I know that's a big topic, but maybe just uh, some of your some of your thoughts on that. Yeah, the probably the first thought that comes to mind is that a marriage should reflect uh, the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. I mean, uh, Ephesians 5 talks about that a lot. And, and first and foremost, our marriage should be all about reflecting that uh, relationship between Christ and the church. You know, Christ loved the church, loved the church. And um, our marriage should show that love to the world, um, just as uh, Jesus loved the church. Now, in terms of biblical biblical roles, um, the husband is really the head of the church. And I like that term head because the scripture uses that. And what's interesting, he doesn't use the term, um, other terms like um, a CEO, um, uh, you know, uh, commander, uh, you know, a captain, he uses this term head. And it's very interesting. If you think about a body, there's an organic connection between the head and the body. Um, and we need to keep that in mind in terms of, of how we uh, treat our wife and treat our family, um, that there is this organic connection that we need. It's not just somebody you know, on the 50th floor that sends out an email to their uh, employees telling them what to do. You know, if, if a husband does that kind of thing, it's not going to go over well. Um, there needs to be this uh, organic uh, relationship with, with the wife and the family, this loving relationship. But they have absolutely legitimate authority that God gives them um, in the home. Um, and that is uh, something that we should keep in mind. Now, in terms of the wife, the wife's primary primary role is that they're a helper, right? When Eve was created by God, God uh, God brought her to Adam and said, "Though this is this is your help me, your helper, um, your helper that is suitable to you." And what's interesting about that um, section in Genesis, it. Uh, it says, well, it's not good for you to be alone. So I'm going to create, create a helper suitable for you. And that's the impetus for, uh, for the help. It's to alleviate loneliness in the man. That's the primary thing. There's another thing that keeps in mind that, that she is to be the helper also in life. It's not just uh, a decor decoration, you know, that sits on the couch um, to alleviate his loneliness. No, there's a, there's a, a, a help, a tangible help that happens in life, um, to, to, uh, help him in his calling, his vocation or whatever it is. So same question, but now those same key principles applied to successfully parenting godly. Um, yeah, I think one of the, the, key, there's so many principles for, for parenting. So I'm just going to, uh, boil it down to the, 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 the top principles that I can keep in mind is that 
the number one principle is to love God first. You know, Deuteronomy 6, right, is one of those classic verses. And uh, remember in uh, homeschool, my mom tried to get me to uh, memorize this this chapter. And we got pretty good. We got pretty good, pretty far. Um, but it talks about uh, kind of a walk-along, talk-along relationship that we have with our, with our children. And I'm going to go back, but I'm going to uh, start at verse six, which is uh, the, the normal place that people start in this passage. And these words, which I command you today shall be diligently in your heart. Uh, sorry. Verse seven is where they normally start. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, when you rise up. And this is absolutely what we should do. We need to teach our kids the word of God, the law word of God, the commandments of God. That is absolutely critical. But we need to understand verses four and five first. Um, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall, look at verse five, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words, what words? The words that he just talked about. And these words, which I command you today, shall be in your heart. So first and for, foremost, for um, a, uh, an essential principle of parenting is that you personally have to love God. And out of that, obviously, you need to teach your, that, teach your uh, kids about, about God and what he expects expects. So that's the first and foremost principle. The second principle is prayer. I, I, I can't underestimate the requirement that we need to pray. And this is something that I, I've struggled with, uh, in parenting all my life. It's like, no, you think that you can affect change in your kid by, you know, um, changing whatever the environment, not letting them watch that show or not letting listen to that music. And those are good things. Don't get me wrong, but, um, we need to realize, Oh, that's, that's of some value. But if God, if you're not praying to God to change their heart, there's only some value that is incredible value. You need God to, to, um, to change your kid's heart. That's why prayer is so essential. And the third uh, principle is um, uh, to follow, follow the Bible. I mean, you personally, but you also need to teach your kids to follow the Bible. The command to honor your parents, right? We need to teach them a command. It may so seem self-serving. Um, and to some degree, you, you want well-behaved kids. Don't, don't get me wrong. But it's a command from God. It's not a command from you. Um, and there's a warning attached to that. Um, why do you honor your uh, father and mother? Well, it's the right thing to do. We want to obey God. We want to love God, right? Um, but if we don't, um, you know, we want to, We can't live long in the land. We're going to have a, a troubled life. Um, and probably the fourth, fourth principle in terms of parenting is that you need to love your children. Um, uh, the, in Titus two, 
the older women are to teach the younger women to love their children. Um, and that is essential. We need to love our children. We can't just, can't just teach them and we should absolutely teach them, but we need to love our children. The, the two greatest commandments, right? If you, um, summarize the 10 commandments into two, when Jesus did to love God first, right? That's what we talked about. The first principle. And the second principle is to love our neighbor and that, and our neighbor in this case is our children. Um, we need to love our children. And the, the, probably the last principle is we, um, in Ephesians six, it talks about how we teach, uh, we, we raise them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, right? We need to, to teach them that God is there, that who God is, um, that they need to know God, but there's the admonition of the Lord. It's not just a personal piety relationship with God that, that they need to have, but they need to serve God. They need to obey God. That um, That is essential as well. Well, good. Well, thank you for that. Uh, that's helpful to hear from you on that. Um, obviously, in our day for a long time, we have struggled in our country, but also the church has struggled um, with these relationships that God has outlined for us in his word. That's due to sin. And uh, wanted to get uh, one of the controversial elements uh, in the church for a long time has been the matter of divorce and remarriage and wanted to hear from you. What is your biblical understanding of divorce and remarriage? Yeah. So the, the uh, thing that we need to keep in mind um, the, the two key elements of, of marriage, of, of this question of divorce and remarriage, is that God intended marriage to be for life, right? Um, that, you know, divorce in our day is so easy. It's like when things get tough, right, you get divorced. And, and that's the problem. It, we need to understand, we need to keep in mind that God intended marriage to be for life. And in Malachi 2.16, it says, for the Lord of Israel says that he hates divorce. That's, we need to understand that principle as well, that, uh, I mean, God doesn't say too many times that he hates something. And one of those things that he talks about is divorce. And so divorce and remarriage, that question is not to be underestimated at all. God hates divorce. Um, you know, it, if there is an ex ex exception that exists, um, like for example, adultery, um, it's not to be used as an ex escape hatch. Restoration must be a goal. A lot of times um, people will use these even uh, with adultery yo yeah absolutely we'll use these as like a get a jail free card they're like oh you committed adultery i'm out of this marriage and that's really an excuse for really they don't want to be in the marriage to begin with and they want a supposed biblical reason to get out of the marriage as if it's like a legitimate reason um and they use it as an escape hatch. They want to they want to get out of the marriage, but that's the wrong attitude to have. Um, 
it's excruciatingly painful. Uh, I'm assuming to go through something like that, but um, we need to extend forgiveness in that in that uh, 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 issue, that situation. Um, restoration should be the goal. Now, come on, I mean. Look at that parable that Jesus gave about forgiveness, right? About the, the, the king that owed, or the, sorry, the servant that owed the king a tremendous amount of money. I mean, like, it was an impayable, astronomical, debt. impossible debt yeah. that he could absolutely never repay. I did the math. It was like, I can't remember what it is. A thousand lifetimes of a common worker. There's no way that they could, um, they could repay it, and that's that's what we experienced when when um, God granted us forgiveness and salvation. Is that's the debt that we had against Christ? So you know, if our spouse commits adultery, um, the debt is so much less than than what we uh, give to God or what we have uh, with God. Well, so uh, if you don't mind, sorry, because it's on my mind, because it's also going to be in the time we're recording it, this upcoming message uh, that I'm preaching on Sunday. And you mentioned the idea of our sin is, is a kind of treason against God. Um, and I'm going to highlight this Lord's Day, the reality that sin is also spiritual adultery uh, from, from, a, from a believer, that the reality that we commit spiritual adultery against God every time that we sin Every time he is not, uh, we, every time we have a God that's not him, <clears throat> um, there's a spiritual adultery. And yet uh, there is such a graciousness and not a divorce from God from us. Um, so he's not, he doesn't uh, pull the escape hatch for himself. All right. good. I don't have to stay bound to right. you. Kick you out. I'm out of here. <laughs> there, there was, there is such a forgiveness and a, um, a compassion even for us, even in, in our sin. So anyway, I just wanted to highlight that, that element of, of even adultery is not does not mean automatic uh, ending right to, of to the covenant. Yeah. yeah, so important. Yeah, please continue though. Yeah, um, yeah, that's that's what I got. Oh, so. okay. Sorry, I hope I didn't uh, derail your thoughts there a little <laughs> bit too, too much there. Um, okay, and then uh, would you maybe touch a little bit more on your view of okay, uh, the, the a biblical understanding of remarriage. Uh, for divorced people. So divorce does happen. We recognize that's, um, uh, the, and like you mentioned, there's there's elements that play into that. Would you talk about your position on uh, remarriage? Um, specifically about remarriage, um, I think in our culture, you know, you get divorced and then you find somebody, you know, that you like better and you get remarried. But we have to understand um, some of the elements of scripture regarding that, um, you know, if, if you're, for example, your wife, um, you know, uh, abandons you, um, and leaves you, uh, uh, destitute, um, uh, in terms of the marriage, um, and goes and lives with a guy, um, doesn't marry that person. Um, you should not seek remarriage. Um, you should seek restoration with your wife. Now, once she gets remarried, you cannot marry her again, um, even if she gets divorced. 
uh, you're you're prohibited um, by uh, by scripture um, of so remarriage yeah. rules out reconciliation. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. Right, and and that's the problem I think with with uh, uh, getting remarried is that if you know you can't seek reconciliation anymore, you can't seek um, restoration uh, anymore regarding that. So uh, stay unmarried. Uh, woo back your wife. Uh, woo back your husband if that's the situation, um, and and become restored in your marriage and and seek the Lord. I'll go ahead and, and do the next one. Also here, the the next one that we wanted to ask about was um, something that has come up in. I, my lifetime, at least, I, I'm not aware of it being uh, much of one previously. It goes by the, the the term biblical abandonment, and usually it is a uh, a phrase or term that is that is used to uh, justify a, a divorce and usually also to justify remarriage. And it's sort of this category that um, has come up within really Christian circles and counseling circles. Would you identify your understanding of this category and uh, what is your view on it? Yeah, so my understanding of uh, biblical abandonment comes from uh, 1 Corinthians 7. That's typically where um, that concept comes from, um, starting in verse 15. But if an unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So um, what he's dealing with is if an unbelieving spouse um, is married, um, you know, a couple, one of the spouses comes to Christ, they're a believer, and one doesn't. Um, and, and, and 1 Corinthians 7 is clear that if the unbelieving spouse wants to remain married, then they should remain married. Um, but in some cases, the unbelieving spouse may be like, I, you know, I'm out of here. Uh, I can't deal with you as a believer. Um, and verse 15 is saying, if an unbeliever departs, let him de depart. I mean, you, you can't stop, stop him from, um, from departing. So, and, you know, in our, in our culture, in our day and age, you, you really can't stop um, a, a divorce from happening. I mean, you can try, but it, it's going to cost you a lot of money um, and a lot of time. And in the end, you know, the judge is going to grant the divorce anyway. So you really can't stop it. Um, so that's really that's really what it's talking about is if an unbeliever abandons you. Um, All right. So let's apply that to the church. If uh, divorced or remarried or both men what's their ability to serve in the church from your perspective? So uh, I, I guess theoretically, um, you know, it's maybe possible. Um, but for me, uh, I would rather look to other men. Um, you know, in my situation, um, I think we're talking offline at some point. Um, I can't think of a single time in, in my church experience where I ever had an elder that was divorced. Um, so I've never had to deal with this personally. 
and I, I, I can't see myself ever having to deal with this personally because there's, are there other qualified men in the church? I mean, is there only one guy in the church and they happen to be divorced, divorced and you need another elder? I mean, um, I would look for other, other, other guys to fill, to fill that role that, you know, if you have two equally qualified people, you know, and you only have one, one spot for an elder, if you have two equally spiritually qualified people, right. And one is divorced and one is not divorced. Of course I would take the not divorced person. Well, so you tell the divorced guy, we chose the other guy because you've been divorced. Was that what you would oh, say? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Gotcha. Cause I think it's a, a, a greater, um, testimony to the church, um, that you, um, that you stuck it out with marriage all these years and, um, and, uh, yeah. So. Okay, good. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about ecclesiology here. How do you view the relationship, uh, between the plurality of elders? What is your thought on the way in which a plurality of elders works? Well, the way, the way that I see it in scripture is they all have equal authority, but you can't get around the idea that they have different giftings. And because of those different giftings, there's different levels of influence. Some people have more gifts than others. Um, some people have, therefore, have more influence than others. Paul definitely had more influence than the other apostles. Um, uh, he wrote most of the books of the New Testament. So he had a greater level of influence, but he never claimed higher authority than the other apostles. And I think that's a good ex uh, illustration example that we should keep in mind that the elders all have equal authority, but we can't, can't get around the idea that um, of different uh, giftings and influence. Some people just have more. So if they all have equal authority, when there's a disagreement among the elders, what's the process or the proper way of handling that? Well, first and foremost is that scripture is the ultimate guide. I mean, you have to study what scripture is and there should be vigorous debate about uh, the meaning of scripture about whatever the, the topic is. Um, and there should be a, a, uh, you know, a process to do that. Um, it's not ju just, well, I have this opinion. Well, I have this opinion. Well, that's not going to cut it. Um, you need to look at what, um, what Christ says in scripture, what God says in scripture as your ultimate guide. But that doesn't rec that doesn't, um, answer all the questions. As we know, there's been many debates in church history over, over the years, um, about various topics that have never been reconciled. Um, and, um, and I, I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. We will all, we have, we will all have a perfect unity in our terms of our knowledge in, in, in heaven, but we don't necessarily have that now. And it's a good opportunity to demonstrate love to each other, um, whether we, uh, agree or disagree, but sometimes disagreements do happen no matter what, what you do. Uh, you studied scripture, you still come to differing conclusions. So, um, the, the attitude that all of us should have is humility. Um, and you know, 
in 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 how we hold our views. Now, the first uh, thing that we should do is to have submission, if possible. You know, depending on uh, how we hold that view, we may be able to um, put it on a, a lesser uh, value and be able to submit to the other elders in regards to that. Um, that would be the best possible scenario, but sometimes that is not even possible. Um, uh, sometimes it is a matter of conscience um, that you can't get away from and you, you shouldn't go against your conscience. If you have a belief that is, um, you know, in your conscience, you should not go against your con conscience. That is dangerous um, to do that. So in that case, they, the, um, the best thing to do is resign quietly and humbly. Um, you know, no splitting the church. No, you know, taking your marbles and going home and, you know, taking, you know, a group of families with you. That's, that's, not, that's not what it's talking about. That's not humility. That's not going... Um, quietly, just just resign quietly. That's the the best thing to to do. Well, very good. Well, we want to respect the the time and the um, the care for our listeners, and uh, we, we're going fairly long today. We do have some more questions to answer, so we will come back to some of those. But uh, for now, that's all the time we have for truth today. We want to thank you for joining us. And until next time, we hope that you will grow in your love and commitment to Christ and his church as we are sanctified in the truth. God's word is truth.